uh, with the way they love the Lord. With, I'm already emotional this morning. It's that second hymn that got me, so sorry about that. And I didn't get much sleep last night. But it's that next generation. I just don't want to hear uh, that, you know, the next generation doesn't have anything to offer and they're not like us. You look at the names on the back of that bulletin who have gone before us. Phenomenal names. Love those people. Love Janet Bell. Loved Herb Cruz. And the Lord's going to keep doing that. He's going to keep sanctifying and building his church through these kids. And so we got to be pouring into them and loving them and discipling them and not giving up on them because they're not giving up on us. And we've had four uh, already uh, testimonies about reading through the scripture. All four, this is where I chastise you pastorally. Every now and then I have to do this. All, you're nervous. All four have been women. Next year, as we read through the Bible, the goal is that we would have men testifying, I read through the Bible this year for the first time ever. You can listen to it. You don't have to read it. If you want to, I'll come over and read it to you. Uh, I, I'm willing. At night, I'll just sit in your living room and now that I've said that, I'm afraid some of you might ask me to actually do that. I know some of you, but I will. I'll call you, and I'll read it to you if you need to, but let's do it. Not all next year, we're going to read through the Bible together, and it's going to be scary uh, because we've never done it before, and God will show up through his scripture. So let's, let's jump in there and do it together. Let me pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father, thank you so much uh, that throughout scripture we see your gospel passed down from generation to generation to generation and no one generation can lay claim to it exclusively and no one generation has it figured out but it says in your word for a thousand years in your sight or like yesterday when it's passed like a watch in the night and it says in your word that you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And it says in your word that our sins are set before you. Even our secret sins are set before you. And the years of our life are many, but they pass like a mist. So, Father, would you satisfy us in the morning with you? Whether we're old, whether we're young, whether we're in that awful middle-aged <laughs> period where we're lost in between whether we're kids or whether we're breathing our last breaths. May we praise you, may we honor you, may we glorify you, and would you establish the work of our hands in this church, and would you lead us to who you are, to streams of mercy and grace, and would you wake us up from the humdrum of this world with its emails and its constant consumerism and constant entertainment and may we lift up our eyes to the hills see where our help comes from uh, may old men dream dreams and may young men see visions about who you are and what we could do in this world to establish your kingdom here on earth a kingdom of love it's a kingdom of peace it's a kingdom of forgiveness. It's a kingdom of joy. It's a kingdom where we have a king that we get to follow who knows all of our sins, 
all of the family sins that are hidden in the closet, all the things that we've never confessed, and yet you know them all and you love us and you forgive us. And that's unnerving and that's scary because we don't know what you'll ask of us. But you're a king who can be trusted, and you're a God who's proven your tenderness to us and your kindness, and that's what leads us to repentance. So now as we turn our attention to your word, guide us, direct us. As we come to this passage in Peter and and talk further about how to kill our sin before it kills us, we pray in your name, amen. We, uh, we have a tremendous problem. I think we all know that. Like, I think the whole world would agree that we have a tremendous problem. The, the problem is we can't decide what the problem is. Some people will think this. If, if everybody would just vote like me, we won't have a problem. If everybody would just think like me, we wouldn't have a problem. If everybody would just act like me, we don't have a problem. And if you're in high school, you might think, if my parents would just let me do what I want, I wouldn't have a problem. If you're a businessman or woman, you might think, if, if they would just value me for what I bring to the company, I wouldn't have a problem. If you're a spouse, you might say, if my husband or wife would just, if they would just see me for who I am, I wouldn't have a problem You might think you won't have a problem if you just got a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Or you wouldn't have a problem if you could get that raise or you could get that job. We all think that we have a problem that we need to solve. But really the problem is we live in a broken world. And in that broken world, we have sin. And that sin is on us. It would be so nice, wouldn't it, if we could just carve out a group of people and say, if we could get rid of these people, then we wouldn't have a problem. But that's been tried, right? There's genocides throughout world history that have tried that and have not found it to be successful because the problem actually lives in our human hearts. So says Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The problem is that sin lives here. And so what we've been discussing over the period of this uh, last couple weeks is how do we then defeat that sin? Here's what Christ does. He not only saves us from our sin, he not only covers our sin, he not only forgives our sin, but then he also says, here's the power you have to defeat the sin that's in your heart right now. Here's the way that you change those generational struggles. Here's the way that you uh, don't allow that anger to be passed down. Here's the way that you stop that sin, which is continuing the problem in this world. Here's the way that you stop that now in your life, and you can do that with the power of the cross. I will forgive it for sure. I will bring you to my heavens for sure. But I also want you now to learn how to live in such a way that pleases me and to say goodbye to that sin that has been plaguing you, that's been brought into your heart. We have a cat. We have two of them. They're both problematic for any number of reasons. And I, I might have told you this before. I can't remember. I don't think I have. But we have a dog door. It was a great invention. We cut this little dog door into our house um, I don't know how we're going to fix that when we sell it, but we cut this dog door in, and the dog can go in and out, so it can go to the bathroom whenever it wants, so we don't have to wake up in the middle of the night. Beautiful invention. The problem is the cats have figured out how to come in and out, and the cats like to catch things like moles, like live rabbits, like hamsters, 
like birds, dead or alive. And I know you're a feline expert, and you're telling me that they're bringing those things to me as the master of the house as an offering to me. And I don't care. I don't want those offerings. And the other day, about a year ago, actually, they brought in, I, think, I, I don't think I've told you this, uh, the cat brought in a live bat. And the bat was released in our home. And it's flying around our dining room in a circular motion. And Elizabeth and I are in there with a sheet because I've, I've dealt with bats before. And, and I told her, we've got to throw the sheet. When it hits the apex of the dining room, we've got to throw the sheet. And I kept throwing the sheet, and she's not throwing it at a time, which only made me laugh hysterically, which only made her mad. So now we have a problem that the cat has brought into the house. And I can't figure out whether I'm to kill the cat or the bat. I can't figure out what I'm supposed to kill at this moment. But I know the one thing that I can't do is this. I can't say, this is way too complicated. Let's just go to bed and put the house on the market tomorrow. (laughs) Everything sells in Greenville in a day. We can get rid of the problem just by selling this whole house. You can't do that. The bat's in the house. You got to deal with it. Sins in your heart. You can't just sell your heart away. You can't get rid of it. You've got to deal with it. The problem is there now, and you've got to deal with it. Now, here's the deal. You might not like this, but one of the reasons we're struggling so much in this country and in this culture and in this environment we're in is we have no theology of suffering. We live for comfort. We buy beds where you can hit a number. I don't like 67 degrees pressure. I'll take 66. Thank you very much. And and I want my house to be exactly 71 degrees. Euthanasia actually is uh, making its rounds again philosophically because we, we can't deal with death. And in UCLA's handbook, faculty handbook for UCLA, you're no longer allowed to ask people where they come from because you might offend them by asking the question where they're from. So with no, uh, no theology of suffering, we now have a cancer culture, and we, we have this environment where we seek comfort at all costs, anything we can do for us to be comfortable. So here's the first point. Suffering is the way to holiness, and holiness is the way to comfort. Suffering is the way to holiness, and holiness is the way to comfort. 1 Peter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that's not one that you have etched in your bathroom, right? But we need to pay attention to that. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them, join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 
Suffering is the way to holiness, and holiness is the way to comfort. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Christ suffered in the flesh, so arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. In other words, to put to death your sin, here's what we don't talk about a lot, that will cause you some suffering. But the suffering to put your sin to death is not worth comparing to the suffering that will happen if you do sin. So the reality is you will feel a pain to put your sin to death, to say, I don't want this in my life anymore, to mortify it because sin is comfortable to us. It feeds our flesh. You know, it's just for a moment. It tells us we're powerful when we gossip. It tells us we're right when we slander. It, It feeds the flesh when we envy or when we lust. But that sin will cause more suffering in the long run than the suffering of putting it to death. Take, for example, Joseph and David. Right? Joseph, caught by Potiphar's wife, tried to sleep with him, grabbed his cloak. He left his cloak, and he ended up in prison. (laughs) Now, that's more suffering than most of us will have to endure, but he ended up in prison for a number of years. Eventually, after interpreting dreams, he became the second highest person in the Egyptian government. He had all of these resources, and so he could feed his family and his brothers, and it You know, we see at the end of Genesis chapter 50, God works all things together for good. (laughs) And then think David. David didn't go through that momentary suffering to put his sin to death and instead raped Bathsheba. And from there, he was thrown out of his kingdom. From there, all of his family became incestuous relationships. From there, he murdered somebody and his own son died. The lineage of trauma and the lineage of suffering that comes from participating in that one sin was immense. And so holiness comes from arming ourselves in the same way that Christ did, that to put our sin to death, we may have to suffer. It it may cause momentary pain. It may cause that moment where we have to have that feeling of, I would rather indulge in this sin, but I'm, I'm not going to because this is going to open up so much pain and suffering. Instead, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to suffer here. This is written by Peter. Rome, he was in prison around A.D. 62, around A.D. 63. He's later going to die a year later. Maybe hung upside down maybe on a cross, maybe not. That's, we still don't know that for sure, but that's the a theory or at least the history. But Peter is the one that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Why did he say to Peter, get behind me, Satan? Well, Robert Cunningham has a great quote about this. Get behind me, Satan, said Jesus, not to a woman caught in adultery, Not to a sleazy, thieving tax collector. Not to a weeping prostitute yet to walk away from her trade. Not to a woman still hiding in the complex web of her broken sexual relationships and shame. Not to a doubting disciple. But he said, get behind me, Satan. To a leader in his own community clinging so tightly to visions of greatness, power, and control that he couldn't embrace the way of the cross. Peter couldn't embrace the way of the cross. That to follow Christ means we will have resembling marks of suffering and to arm ourselves with that and to recognize it and to be willing to come and to die. 
Now the people here, verse 3, are described as, uh, all of these things are described as a flood. If you look at verse 3, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I, I want to say, if you're not a believer, uh, we're not saying, uh, don't do these things and God will love you. That's not what Christianity says. What Christianity says is, God loves you, so you don't have to do these things. You don't have to fill the void of your life with all of this sensual stuff that's only going to last for a second. You get all of the benefits of right sexuality and right food and right drink. You get all of the benefits of that without having to be a slave to it. But interestingly, he describes this as a flood. They just kind of take you away. They just kind of sweep you away. You never intended to go that far. And I would ask, what are the floods right now? Like, what are the, maybe these are cultural, these all still go on. But, and this is not an exclusive list, but what are the things that kind of take you away? Is it your language? Is it your drinking? Is it your idolatry? Is it your uh, greed? Is it sex? Is it consumerism? What is it that takes you away? Because here's the vision. The vision is those things are going to take you away, or you can, and I love this, you can surprise people with your holiness. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them. If you've been around this church for a number of years, you know I hate haunted houses, hate them. I have no idea why you pay somebody to scare you. I don't get it at all. And it all started when I was like 10 years old. And they took me to a haunted house. And uh, it it got so bad, I was screaming so loudly with a high-pitched voice that they stopped the whole show. And the, the guy with the chainsaw literally turned on the lights, literally took off his mask, walked over to me and said, son, are you okay? And I said, I don't think so. No. You have a chainsaw and you're scaring. Why would I be okay? And then I said, actually, I said, I guess so. I didn't know I was screaming like that. And then they put the lights in. He cranks the thing back up and I start screaming again. And they stopped the whole show again. And I finally got ushered out the back door because I was too freaked out. I have no idea. I don't like haunted houses. But I love the idea, not that we would be scared that we would surprise people, that we would scare people with our holiness, that we would surprise people with the fact that we don't have to join in to the same idolatry that the world joins in, and that people would be taken back by it, that they'd be surprised, they'd be scared almost by our holiness. Wait, you live a different way? You don't, have to, you don't have to bash those people. You don't have to gossip those people. You don't have to trust in this idolatry of politics, this idolatry of your health, this idolatry of being right, this idolatry of whatever it is. You don't put your trust in money. You don't put your trust in pleasure. I'm so surprised by that. Nobody else acts that way. That's the vision that he gives us here. Because you know what people need? You know what this world needs? Not your judgment, not your ideology. What this world needs is your holiness. What this church needs is my holiness. Not my preaching, not my leadership. You need my holiness. And what this culture needs is your holiness. But here's the deal. Suffering is the way to holiness. And holiness is the way to suffering. And the suffering we see in verse 5 and 6, if you don't put the sin to death you're going to have to give an account to the judge of the world. 
Now, we don't have to judge the world. The judge is already there in Christ. He'll judge the world. He'll do the sorting. We can suffer now and be vindicated on the last day, or you could just not suffer, create more suffering, and be judged on the last day. Close this point with this quote by Bonhoeffer. And uh, to remind you, Bonhoeffer was a, a German theologian who uh, had a plan an assassination attempt against Hitler and was caught and was actually right before that offered uh, in 1941 a $100,000, in 1941 money, $100,000 job teaching uh, uh, theology in a seminary in America. And he said, I'm gonna, no, I'm going to stay and suffer with my people so that when this is all over, I can rebuild the church as their pastor and look in their eyes. And he was put in prison, and then they hung him. Bonhoeffer said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark on discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ. In union with his death, we give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. We don't talk about that much, do we? Christ says, come and die to all of this stuff and follow me. Come and die to those worthless idols and follow me. And so the second phrase that I want to give you, second point is this. Serving is the way to strength, and strength is the way to glory. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the very oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and forever. In other words, let me just summarize it, walk through it very quickly. The end of all things is at hand. So wake up. In other words, you don't get a mulligan on life. There's no breakfast ball. Life is not a dress rehearsal. You only get one shot at living for Christ's glory when you're 18 because you're going to turn 19. You only get one shot to live for Christ's glory when you have botched that business. You only get one shot or maybe several shots at showing the culture how to live joyfully through cancer. You only get one shot to do this, so be sober-minded, be alert. It doesn't mean be morose. It means be fully awake to the realities of what's happening here about your mind, thinking about what you could do, and what do we do? Verse 8, we love. We love. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. That's the Christian way. 
People sin against you, you love them. You've got an enemy, you love them. Somebody speaks against you, you love them. Somebody gossips, you love them. Somebody manipulates you, you love them. Uh, Somebody has something against you, you love them. We love. It covers a multitude of sins. It covers pride, it covers anger, it covers grief. There's so much I could talk about there, but let me keep going. Because verse 9 just has more for us. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's going to change the world if we get that. Polycarp, you don't know him, but he was an early church father. And uh, the Romans were going to come and kill him. And he knew they were coming because he was preaching the gospel. And so they showed up at his house. He was later going to be bound. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be lit on fire. That was going to happen in about 24 hours after this moment. But 24 hours before that moment, the soldiers came up to his house, and they said, Polycarp, we're here to get you. And he said, I know, but do you all want to sit down and have a meal first? The soldiers that were coming to torture him and kill him, he offered hospitality to. He offered them a meal, and they took him up on it. And they came in, and they sat down together, and they ate. And he had hospitable nature with them without grumbling. Hospitality in the church, it starts pretty simply, doesn't it? It just says thank you or hello or how are you? Have you been here before? Uh, I've never seen you. You look sad. Uh, can I pray for you? It's just, it's just hospitality. And these doors, when people walk into these doors, whether you are stinking of bourbon from the night before or whether you're dressed in a seersucker suit or whether you just came off your night shift or whether you've showed up for the first times, you should receive hospitality. It's hospitality that changes this world that we live in. That house two houses down that we own where it says Mitchell Road Community House, where now we do tutoring for the kids that come from Mitchell Road Elementary into those apartments, and they're stopping into that home for tutoring, just for a meal, for a snack, for somebody to love them. Last two weeks, two kids have become Christians there because of hospitality, because somebody loved them. And over the last couple of weeks, you don't know this, and we don't talk about this much, but over in the very back behind our retainer pond, there's been homeless people living in the woods back here on our property. We're not kicking them out. We're just trying to talk to them, figure out why they're homeless, be hospitable. We're not going to say, get off our grass. We're the church. So hospitality That's the new vision of serving this world. And we serve this world in such a way that we create these gospel ecosystems of what it means to put our own selfishness to death and now to live for the glory of Christ. So look at what it says in verse 10. We use this as a gift. Each of you have a gift, and we're to be stewards of that gift, to serve each other, whether it's speaking with whatever it is, the gift that God supplies And I just want to give you a vision, especially for the young people. Uh, You've been on my mind a lot. I've been praying for junior high and high school kids a lot. I just want to give you a vision that your life could be used in such a way to serve Christ. Maybe you're gifted to make money. Go make a bunch of money. That's great. Get your lake house. That's great. Then start an orphanage. 
Maybe you're gifted at teaching. Find somewhere to teach God's truth to kids. Uh, Maybe you're gifted at coaching. Go be the best high school football coach in the history of the world and love those kids, many of which don't have a father who ever has loved them. Get a vision for how God has gifted you for what you can do with your life and go do it. And it's going to be amazing how God works through you. And we'll be humbled by it. And we'll see the way, as it says in this text, that God will give you all the strength that you need and he'll supply you with it. Verse 11, serving is the way to strength and strength is the way to glory. Because when we serve, you get to a point where you say, I can't love anymore. I can't be hospitable anymore. I'm too tired. And at that moment, that's when God gives you the strength that you need. Look at verse 11. As one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You're not serving out of your own strength. You're serving out of his. I used to run. I don't really run much anymore. Uh, And I'm not a good runner. I need to get back into it, obviously. Um, I've got bad knees. I've got a bad back. I've got a awful gait, uh, but I used to love to run, mainly for the drugs, um, mainly for the runner's high. You can get a runner's high at usually like mile five, but I'm not a good runner. I, I remember running in the Cooper River Bridge Run, and I got passed by a girl. It's not a problem. Nobody should laugh at that. That's not a problem. She was pushing a stroller. <laughs> Still not a problem. It was a double stroller. (laughs) She was pushing twins she gave birth to and passed me. But I run for the runner's high because there's that moment where you don't think you can go anymore and then your endorphins kick and you get what they call the runner's high, usually mile five for me. And so the first four and a half miles are suffering. And then you get the high and you realize this is why we do this. There is a sense where what we do in serving is we serve for the spiritual high. We serve to the point, we love to the point, we show hostility to the point where we say, I can't do this anymore. And then God says, oh, yes, you can. And he supplies our need and he supplies what we have to get through that day because we're working out of stewards of his grace that he's already given us so that we can finish the race. And so we can say at the end of verse 11 here, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever that Christ is the one that we follow, that he is the king who is leading us, a king of tenderness, a king of grace, a king of mercy, a king with the scars on his wrists and his feet and his side who suffered so that we can follow in the same path for glory, for his glory. So we have suffering and we have be a servant. And if you put those together, you have a suffering servant, which is what we find in Christ. Isaiah 53 He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds... We are healed. Friends, here's what I want to remind you of. I want to remind you 
finally this morning of the great grace that is ours in Christ. That the Father loves you. And that the Son died for you and that the Holy Spirit exists to unite you with him and has put down the deposit on your life so that you never have to doubt. I want to remind you of the way that God extends you grace and forgiveness over and over again because by his wounds, he's paid for everything and we are healed. And matter of fact, in the garden, when all of this broke apart, it was the serpent who said, take and eat that apple. It's not going to harm you. Feed the flesh. That one moment, just grab the apple. Don't, don't trust God has your best intentions in mind. Just grab the apple and then... That take and eat of the serpent has been replaced by Christ's sacrifice where he said, now take and eat. Take and eat my body. Take and eat my blood. And remind yourself of the suffering that I did. Now follow in that path, serving me so that you can have comfort and so that you can have glory. On the screen, we'll put up this communion prayer that we often pray uh, that says, We'll read it responsively. 